Anyone know what that is? That's music to my ears. That's another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether you're selling shirts or sandals, start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll customize your online store to your brand, discover new customers, and build relationships that will keep them coming back. Shopify covers all the sales channels to successfully grow your business, from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to 24-7 support and free on-demand business courses, Shopify is here to help you succeed every step of the way. It's how every minute, new sellers around the world make their first sale with Shopify. And you can do it too. I love how Shopify makes it simple for anyone to sell their products anywhere. Whether they're eBooks or earrings, Shopify simplifies starting and running your own successful business. When you're ready to take your idea to the world, do it with Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Now it's your turn to try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. So sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite. Go to shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite, to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash c-suite. You're listening to Thinking Outside the Bud, where we speak with entrepreneurs, investors, thought leaders, researchers, advocates, and policymakers who are finding new and exciting ways for cannabis to positively impact business, society, and culture. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeldt. Are you a CEO looking to scale your company faster and easier? Check out Thrive Roundtable. Thrive combines a moderated peer group mastermind, expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Thinking Outside the Bud. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. And our guest today is Michael Schwamm. He is a partner at Dwayne Morris. We're going to talk to him about the work they're doing in cannabis. Dwayne Morris is one of the leading international law firms and has a very strong cannabis presence. And they've done a lot of different deals, a long legacy in cannabis, if you can have a legacy yet. I guess we've been around yeah. for some while. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and we're going to talk to him about you know, what he sees going on as a lawyer working with some of the bigger companies, bigger players in the cannabis space about uh, you know how things are unfolding, what's going on now in 2021. Obviously, we've had a couple of states go past some initiatives from the recent election cycle, including New Jersey and the Northeast here. So we're going to talk a little bit about where some of those things are, what the future might hold, and you know how the cannabis industry is shaping up, particularly in the Northeast here. So uh, obviously, a huge market that's been waiting to kind of get online. So with that, Michael, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. And yeah, legacy, I think you can say that because we view it as dog years. So, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's seven years for every one year uh, is the equivalent. At least, yes. Cool. So let's get to know you a little bit, understand your background and stuff, and then we can talk about how you got into cannabis and, and the work you're doing today. What was the background? How law, cannabis, tell us the story. 
So I think like most of us in this space, we've all taken circuitous routes into the industry. I've been a lawyer at Dwayne Morris for now, I think, 17 years, the only lawyer overall for more years than I care to mention. But I've been primarily over the you know, last 15 to 20 years of a private you know, M&A lawyer, as well as helping you know, private companies raise private capital. And about six or seven years ago, as sort of an outgrowth of the M&A private equity practice, I was asked to co-lead our family office practice, you know, with a focus on single family offices doing direct investing. And as I started to speak to the family offices I know and attend family office conferences, I noticed that, as is usual for most conferences, nobody spends any time in the sessions and everybody's out networking other than, you know, if, if there's a a high visibility keynote speaker. But what was unique about these conferences was the topic of investing in cannabis, you know, the room was packed. I mean, it was, you know, standing room only. I mean, you know, obviously they had not anticipated such a large crowd, so it wasn't no. in the, you know, in the super duper big ballrooms, but the now there were large rooms and you know everybody was flocking in and it really dovetailed pretty much with the, the with the firm allowing us to start bringing in cannabis clients and so it did not go unnoticed to me that you know the asset class for lack of a better word that I was trying to get to know better and and work with and was the primary investor in the cannabis space you know meshed completely with being at back then really the first national firm with a very active Highly you know, publicized cannabis practice. It was on our website. You know, there were no restrictions of you only can do plant, you know, non-plant touching. You know, ancillary businesses. No, you know, no plant touching in the U.S. And so, you know, I, I took a bit of a of a plunge. Talked to my key clients to see, you know, if my involvement in the space would be apparent to them, and they yeah. would, you know, they would walk away and. I got completely the reverse reaction from them saying, you know, funny, you should ask. We've sort of been thinking how we can, <laughs> how we too can play in this space. And these were, you know, these were, you know, financial services companies, yeah. data analytics. I mean, you know, I mean, you know, you know, fairly established quasi conservative businesses. And so that made the decision really clear. And, you know, it's been a, a very interesting journey, you know, in the last, you know, four or five years since then. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, it's fascinating. I think, you know, I talked to a lot of people, and a lot of people have been on the program where, you know, they kind of started their cannabis experience where, you know, they're kind of hiding it from their families and not putting it on their LinkedIn profiles and stuff. And then now it's like becoming this calling card and people are not coming to give them for jobs. <laughs> they want advice. You know, so it's, it's just, it's really noticeable, I think, over the last particularly three, four years, just how a lot of that has switched and it's becoming much more of a calling card. I mean, absolutely. I mean, it, it's now to the point where, you know, my biggest PR person are my wife and my kids who all over the age of 21, you know, who now, you know, march around saying my dad's a pot lawyer. So it, uh, um, <laughs> things, ha things have certainly changed and you're right. We, people used to sort of, you know, ha you know, do it on a hush hush, but, yeah. uh, yeah, you, you know, it's, you gotta be out there. And so I think people have realized that, you know, visibility in the sector is very important. Yeah. And, you know, if, if you know, people are gonna take you seriously, you have to, you know, be out there effectively, you know, advertising that, you know, yeah. it's not an industry you're, you're afraid of. So, yeah, no, you gotta be, you gotta be in the space. I'm curious as a lawyer, I mean, I, obviously cannabis is illegal from a federal point of view and that poses some challenges, but as you kind of started getting involved with this cannabis companies, what were some of the things that you had to kind of relearn or change your thinking around, you know, either generally as 
a professional or as a lawyer in terms of your practice, you know, when you're dealing with cannabis companies, why, you know, at some level, they're just like any other company, but, you know, they're not. And at some levels, what were the things that really kind of changed for you as you had to really start figure out how you were going to serve cannabis companies effectively? Well, I think, I mean, you're right. I mean, the, they, you know, these are companies that have all the same issues and problems as other companies on steroids because of the twofold. One, the federal illegality issue, but also, you know, they're they're attracting a you know a wide variety of, of folks, you know, into the industry who don't necessarily understand the industry, but they see the opportunity. So, you know, the biggest challenge for us is the real degree of sort of legal uncertainty around things and the you know the lack of clarity in regulations which means you really have to think there's a lot of risk analysis being done because there is no black and white answer everything tends to wind up in the in the gray zone at best and so you know obviously you know we would never counsel a client on anything that constituted criminal activity that could really wind up in jail but there is a lot of sort of, you know, what if, you know, this happens? What if that happens? What if the you know, federal government changes their enforcement policy? And so really guiding clients through the, through, you know, the risk profile of their activity and sort of giving our best guess based upon sort of other industries and how we've seen them develop. I think, you know, you know one of the areas that we've really drawn upon in our practice is from our colleagues in, in the gaming practice, because a lot of the, the regular state regulatory frameworks look a lot like that in terms of, you know, license applications and who who can and can't hold the license and who has to go on a license application and, and the when the way you structure to protect companies if you get an undesirable person, you know, mm-hmm. on your cap table to how you can get rid of them, you know, those kind of issues which, you know, without sort of that broad experience you might miss. I mean, you know, we've seen a lot of standard documents flowing their way into the cannabis world that cause issues. One is, you know, you know, not having the ability to buy out someone who becomes, you know, sort of a quote bad actor mm-hmm. uh, in in the sector, and you're sort of, you know, you're you're sort of stuck with them, and you have to figure a way, you know, outside the documents to buy them out or risk your license issue. The other big one we see is, you know, people, you know, as lawyers want to, you know, have a want to do, just sort of copying the boilerplate from the prior document yeah. and having choice of jurisdiction for lawsuits yeah. in federal court, which can be a real issue. Because if, if you wind up with a dispute in federal court, you run the risk that the court, you know, will yeah, refuse to enforce. But, you know, yeah. or they will, right. Or they will, I mean, if they hear it, they will refuse to enforce the contract because they view it as a, a legal, you know, a legal yeah. activity. So you have to yeah. sort of be thoughtful about those provisions when you roll them into a, an, a cannabis deal. Yeah. Well, even like the bankruptcy stuff, I've like, I've seen some of this yeah. come up where, you know, things are, you know, leaning upon or relying upon, you know, bankruptcy procedures and things like that. And like, obviously not available to the cannabis companies. So, you know, just having to rethink all of those kind of parameters and how you're going to deal with different situations. And if the documents aren't set up right, now you're in a situation where it's it's just non-functional or, or you're, now you're, you're yeah, in yes. uh, uncharted waters in terms of right. how you're going to get things resolved. Which has, been, which has been particularly troublesome sort of in the cannabis lending world because, yeah. you know, I mean, creditors, for all the problems that bankruptcy might cause, you know, as a unsecured yeah. lender, it does bring order to the process. Yeah, and, exactly. Right, and not Resolution. knowing then what happens. And I mean, yes, maybe if you're all in, if everything you do is in a single state, maybe there are state creditor rights provisions you can take advantage of. But mm-hmm. for some of these larger MSOs, it's a you know, it is a real problem. And uh, till this 
the federal level, you know, or or the some fixes made, it will continue to be a problem. Yeah, I'm curious in terms of your experience of working with all these different companies, particularly MSOs, we're dealing with you know, all these different states and, you know, every state seems to have its own formulas and, you know, regulations and structure and stuff like that. I mean, I guess as a as a, a lawyer in the cannabis space, is this, is there enough similarity where you can generally kind of treat it as, um, you know, common and then you kind of need to adjust by state or is really each state its own game and you really need to know all the ins and outs? I mean, like in terms of, you know, doing the work with some of these companies, how important to the state specific regulations and frameworks play in terms of how you do your work yeah i mean i mean sadly they're all fairly different so you really need to not only actually understand the state level but down to the local and municipal because very often the you know the you know those licenses are even more difficult to obtain and transfer and so i think one of the one of the real reasons we were able to so quickly develop our national campus practice is you know our geographic footprint you know across the of the country we're in you know 23 states at well 23 cities in the u.s encompassing you know most of the larger cannabis legal states and where we you know where we don't have lawyers admitted to practice we know you know we know smaller you know regulatory firms in those states who can help us through the ins and outs of the regulatory aspect i mean that's where it's important obviously on the you know on the transaction side you know we're used to doing transactions around the country around the around the world and you you know align yourself with sort of you know local counsel in jurisdictions where the regulatory aspects are important. But no. yeah, I mean, unfortunately, there is no standardized set of cannabis laws or reg- you know, regulations, or more importantly, sort of contact with the, the regulators in those states, because yeah. unfortunately, you know, sometimes the, the regulations are not crystal clear, and therefore, they're really open to, you know, interpretation. And you know, sometimes the regulators interpret differently than the lawyers. Yeah. And as you you know, look at some of these states, I mean, we've got a bunch of new states coming online here. Do you see a difference between some of the earlier states and how they've set things up and the states that have kind of come on later? Have they been kind of learning and changing and adjusting kind of from previous states, you know, making the process better, improving it? Or what's, I guess, what's your take on how new states have come online? Are they, are they sort of taking a different approach because of what they've learned from other states? I think they're, they're, they're to some extent, they're sort of an East Coast, West Coast you know, difference in philosophy, right? The, the East Coast states seem to be much more limited licensed states, whereas the West Coasts you know, are more open. You know, obviously, you have to meet the licensing criteria, but they don't have low hard caps on the number of licenses. I mean, look at uh, you know, California, and then you know, you know, I think it's remarkable that you know, Arizona, less than three months after approval, you know, had their first sales of you know, adult-use cannabis, whereas you know, New, New Jersey, we don't even have the enabling legislation yet. So, yeah. Um, you know, I think they clearly do look at prior, you know, prior legislation and, you know, what they think works and what doesn't work. But, you know, the the population base also sort of plays into a role in terms of, you know, which constituents you're looking to, you know, please and not please. And and obviously in New Jersey, you know, the, the holdup has been, you know, how you are handling, you know, the the underage users and what the penalties are and how that's done. And that has seemed to have at least slowed down the ability to come to an agreement. And I mean, I mean, this is sort of the one shot to get it right. And so, you know, yeah, I mean, there are issues you have to deal with. 
you know, it'll be, you know, you know, New York, you know, sort of struggling between, you know, the way the governor wants to set up and way the, you know, the state legislature wants to set up. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. But, I, you know, I listen, they, the common thread for all these states is the desperate need for tax revenue. Right? I mean, it, you know, they yeah. were they were in need of tax revenue before, you know, the pandemic hit. Mm-hmm. That's obviously even more of a, of a case now. And so, you know, I mean, I expect that sooner rather than later, we will get the legislatures in those states where, you know, it's legal or, you know, referendums have been, yeah, where, sorry, where referendums have been passed and they need enabling legislation, we'll get terms pretty quickly. And I think, you know, as soon as New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, as soon as one of them implements adult use, one yeah. would expect that the other two will fall into line quickly, particularly if it's New Jersey, right? Because it sort of borders both those states. Yeah, exactly. And and one can imagine that the, you know, the, uh, the revenue departments in, in in those states don't want that revenue flowing, you know, across whichever river it happens to be, and they want to keep it, you know, in their jurisdiction. I mean, it's not, yeah, it, it is a, uh, it's going to be interesting how it plays out. But, you know, yeah. you also then have, I mean, you know, already in the 2020 legislative session, you know, I think there are now six or seven states, you know, where have already ha- have some form of legalized you know, either medical or, you know, recreational cannabis already put forth and we're less than a month into that legislative session. So I think we're quickly in 2021, the percentage of the population in states where it's illegal in one form or another, there's going to continue to to climb well up towards a percentage that makes the issue sort of a non-issue anymore. And we'll talk a little bit about what's going on in the Northeast, just because that is um, kind of an interesting situation for cannabis. You know, we're recording this the end of January here. We had election cycle November. The voters in New Jersey passed initiative. Actually, I'm, I'm, I can't remember technically if it's initiative, it's a ballot measure, but we voted on something in the, in yeah. the election that basically gave instructions to the legislature to make adult use recreational marijuana available, you know, legal in the state. But I mean, we're still waiting for legislation to get developed and written and passed. And where are we, I guess, at this point? And how much do you feel this is now causing pressure? I mean, I, I've, I saw some things come out with Cuomo is now, you know, putting, you know, for New York. York is putting more stuff down in the budget, saying that you know we're going to pass adult use in, in New York as well. But I guess give me your take on where things are now, and how do you suspect they're going to play out in terms of timing and process, and, and actually making this stuff available to folks? Right. So let's take New Jersey first, because I guess in theory it's further along. Yeah, theory. <laughs> right. So in November, you know, the voters sort of overwhelmingly passed you know the the referendum to approve adult use cannabis. The you know the legislature you know has to then essentially pass enabling legislation for the governor to sign and you know we were there we thought and then at the last minute this this issue came up in terms of you know how we are as a state going to treat those under twenty one who are you know, who are found in possession of marijuana one would hope that we will get this issue quickly resolved obviously it is you know a an important sort of social justice social equity issue because you know predominantly it's minorities who are getting arrested for this stuff i mean that's a whole whole other, whole other topic so yeah. you know now once legislation is approved by both houses and signed by the governor then there will be an application process unlike last time when they were vertically integrated you know these will be separate licenses for each for grow mm-hmm. and dispensaries one would think that if you already have an existing medical 
license that you will be able to get an expedited approval to sell adult use. I think with the caveat being that you have to guarantee you have enough supply for the medical side of things. Mm -hmm. But and from talking to people who are sort of more plugged into New Jersey politics than I, it's, you know, sort of don't expect adult use sales to start, you know, for at least four to five months after the legislation is passed because, you know, you have to go through the application process. You, get, you need to give people time to prepare their applications. They'll have to be reviewed and decided who's going to get them because, right, it is a limited licensed state. And so, you know, there's clearly going to be an overwhelming number of applications for these licenses. New York has clearly become a, a Cuomo priority. You know, he's been speech highlighting cannabis. He's now put out his budget briefing packet. Mm -hmm. You know, th there are, you know, there are some significant differences between the governor's proposal and the the proposal from the legislature from last last session. One would think, you know, this time around, they hopefully, because it's starting at earlier in the year, you know, we'll be able to come to some compromise. You know, it obviously is, you know, a much more important issue for everybody on the tax revenue side. Yeah. Um, I think New York is predicting, I think, somewhere like $300 million in tax revenue from, from the tax on this. But, you know, it's mm -hmm. going to sort of depend upon the tax rates. I think the governor's bill has the sort of the tax the top tax rate topping out at 17, 18%. And it's, you know, it's a bit of a delicate balance if you're trying to crack down on, on the black market and, and drive everybody into a regulated legal market. Yeah. Um, the taxes are too high. You know, you've created this socioeconomic divide in terms of who can buy legally and who's sort of stuck there in the black market. And so, yeah. Is there any good uh, insights in, in terms of previous states on what effective tax rate people are kind of willing to pay to go to the legal market and what tax rate, you know, keeps keeps a lot of people in the illicit market? I mean, is there, have you seen any insights into what, what that magic number is? No, you know, and I actually had this conversation sort of on, the, you know, the, the supply demand curve and, you know, reaching back into my days as an econ major in college, which is far too long, <laughs> yeah, exactly. far too long ago. But, you know, the, the problem here is the legal market has been there for so long and uh, you haven't had, you haven't had the ability like you would normally do if you were a company out of something that sort of change your price to see the elasticity of demand, right? I mean, these are tax rates set by legislatures. And once they're set, you know, they're set, you know, maybe they move them a little bit here or there, you know, after a couple of years, but I just sort of not enough data to determine are these new customers coming in, former black market customers, or are they, mm -hmm. you know, new consumers, you know, for whom the tax is not, you know, overwhelming. I mean, you know, I have a tiny small sample size of people I've talked to about this who are buying in the in the legal market would never buy in the illegal market. So, you know, the sort of the question is, do I, I go yeah. to a dispensary? Am I not going to buy because the tax rates are too high? But, you know, these are not, sort of, you know, they're, these are casual consumers of the product. So I, yeah. I don't think there's nearly enough data yet. But, you know, clearly there's still a large black market. And a lot of it has to do with, you know, the, I mean, it's already more expensive in the legal market, but it, as we've seen from some of these, you know, vaping and other issues, there is a quality control issue in the black market. If, you know, I mean, it's black market vape cartridges, you know, were the ones that caused the problem, not from the, from the, from the legal market. So I think there are a lot of reasons to try to drive people, you know, to the health reasons to drive people to, into the legal market. And so I'm, I'm curious, like, as you look at the legislation that's being drafted and the regulations that are getting put in place, I mean, what are the things that you're kind of looking at or, or think are the 
kind of the key factors. Like I know that there's been some talk around, you know, things like delivery, you know, allowing for delivery services and stuff like that. I mean, what's what's on your list of kind of interesting aspects of these policies that are being developed and, and what do you hope happens, you know, in terms of building a healthy cannabis industry in the Northeast here? Well, I mean, listen, I think the pure fact of allowing adult use will, you know, open up a lot of opportunities for, you know, everybody if it's done, you know, in a certain way. And I'll get back to that second. But, you know, we're already starting to see, you know, people step up and take notice. You know, how can they how can they get a, a license in, in New York and New Jersey? You know, where can they find capital? But one of the issues that, you know, comes up as you're trying to address the sort of social justice issues of this is it is difficult to find capital if you tell somebody, you know, we will either have a set aside for minorities like you're doing with delivery in Massachusetts, mm-hmm. or you get extra points on your application if you are, but you have to own, you know, at least 51%. You know, if it's a capital intensive business, it's a challenge to find capital that if you look at it on a straight economic basis, money coming in would, you know, be more than, you know, 50%. I mean, yeah. Well, it just it perpetuates the the disproportionate yeah. wealth situation we have relative yes, yes. to race and yes. economic opportunity and stuff. Right, yeah. but so I mean, you have to figure out a way to to help fund these businesses that doesn't require equity because it'll be extremely difficult if all yeah. you can do is equity for you know the the minority applicants to yeah. continue to retain fifty one percent for three or four years, whatever, right? Because even I mean, we all know these businesses are highly capital intensive, and even yeah. if you start at fifty one percent, you're going to come to a point where you know, you need more money and your 49% equity capital partner is not going to take kindly to saying, well, you know, we need 10 more million, 10 million more dollars. I need to stay at 51%. So you have to take 100% of this, this equity dilution. And, you know, it's been, this is not unique to cannabis. I mean, we do have, you know, the WBE, MBE, veteran, BE, you know, all those where, you know, the person is required to have control of the business. And so, you know, the difference there is, you know, very often they can finance some of their stuff with debt, you know, yeah. which is non-dilutive. So, I mean, it's it, it's an issue and there is no easy answer. I mean, this is not one sort of where you just say, well, let's let capitalism play out. I mean, that's the that's a whole debate in terms of are you a limited license state or do you let, you know, the free market determine who is successful or not? And yeah. The, and and um, how do you see, I mean, as New Jersey develops, you know, puts in place these programs and gets closer to actually launching a adult use programs in the state. I mean, how how much pressure do you think this is really good putting on uh, New York and, and Pennsylvania in terms of if they don't really get this in place sooner, what do you think is going to happen? Or I guess give, give me a sense of your practically how much pressure is it really putting on and how quickly are these other states likely to move? Well, listen, as, as a resident of New Jersey, I, you know, I would be delighted mm-hmm. if it took them if it took them longer because that would help get my taxes down. Right? Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> We're going to pick up all the tax revenue from three states. <laughs> I mean, I, I think there is going to be a lot of pressure. I mean, there are only two ways to you know, to repopulate the tax coffer. Well, I guess there are three ways, right? You can you can raise you can raise the existing in- income tax rates, which is going to drive you know more and more of the high income earners out of your state, which will then decrease your tax revenues, right? You can find other revenue sources, or you can cut the services you're providing, which also might le- cause the higher income folks to leave the state. So you're ultimately left with: Can we find a new revenue source, you know, to refill our coffers? Mm-hmm. And 
I mean, this is clearly at the moment the only game in town until some other, you know, new revenue source comes along from, you know, whatever it might be. So, you know, I would, I mean, I think there's intense press pressure, even if New Jersey doesn't go first for these other two states to yeah. push it through. Right? I mean, there was pressure, obviously, before all this happened, you know, there was, sort of was a race for additional revenue. Mm-hmm. So I think, I don't necessarily think that New Jersey going first will cause New York and Pennsylvania to act. It may cause them to act a bit faster, but I think everybody is at the point is probably racing to, you know, figure out how quickly they can start bringing in tax revenue independent of yeah. of the other state. Because it's, I mean, it's not as if this is, you're going out and buying, you know, spending $20,000 on a house or a car or something like that. I mean, th- this will be recurring revenue. So you mm-hmm. may miss some at the front end, yeah. but, you know, once, you know, once there's a dispensary for which you don't have to cross the river, you know, I think people are more likely to go someplace that's local. And so you yeah, will so then catch that revenue, revenue going forward. But, you know, I mean, it, every little bit helps. And I think it, it helps to keep the pressure on, you know, either the governor or the legislator, depending on which one is pushing harder on the other to say, you know, we need to get this done because, you know, look at our neighboring state. You know, they're, you know, yeah. they're now starting south. As a strategic coach, I would say Jersey would have a, a temporary and non-defensible advantage. <laughs> as, as soon as New York did it, like, okay, people would start yeah. buying New York. I mean, unless, I mean, unless they had the, yeah. some aspect of the policy or something they provided. Yes. I mean, I could see things like... You know, if they don't allow for edibles or something like that right away, and you know that yes. could, you know that could yeah. draw people across or, state lines. Yeah, but. or somehow you develop real brand loyalty, and that brand is not yet available in the state that yeah. you want to buy it. I could see that if I was a brand, I could see placing myself in Jersey just because it would be within striking distance of New York City and Philadelphia. And if I didn't want to bother setting up operations in these other states, you know, and deal with all that craziness. Um, yeah, I could yeah. I could see some of that. Michael, this has been a pleasure. If people want to find out more about you, about Dwayne Morris, the work that you do. What's the best way to get that information? So, I mean, the, if you go to our website, www.dwaynemorris, that's D-U-A-N-E-M-O-R-R-I-S.com, and go to the tabs. We actually have a tab for industry groups, and our cannabis group is one of our 14 areas. And there's a ton of information on that page in terms of you know the kind of work we do. You can find my bio there. My my email address is mdschwam at dwaynemorris.com. You can you can also find that on the website. Happy to, to chat offline with anybody who wants to explore this issue further. As you can tell, it's uh, it's one that I love talking about. I probably have three or four conversations a day I'm these sure. days around the cannabis industry. I love to you know hear what other people are doing, offer any sort of advice I can, help make connections to people who are you know either looking to enter or. You know, they have a company, you know, looking to partner with somebody and they want some ideas to whom they might want to talk to. So, uh, you know, it's we view ourselves as stewards of this industry and anything we can do to help the industry grow, even without any direct benefit to the firm. You know, we always like to help. Yeah, no, it's excellent. I'll make sure that all the links and everything in the show notes so people get that information. Michael, thank you so much for taking the time today. I appreciate it. My pleasure. And, you know, let's, we can, you know, as things progress, you know, I'd love to chat more further. We didn't even get around to sort of the M&A and capital raising activity. But, you know, all all this stuff has happened also recently that I think it's important to sort of look and see where you think the industry is going in 2021, which I think is going to be a great year for the cannabis world. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And we'll do a, we'll do a follow-up episode then. Awesome. Great. Thanks, Michael. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. That's it for this episode of Thinking Outside the Bud. Be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast app so you don't miss our future episodes. See you next time. You've been listening to Thinking Outside the Bud with business coach Bruce Eckfeld. To find a full list of podcast episodes, 
Download the tools and worksheets and access other great content. Visit the website at thinkingoutsidethebud.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at thinkingoutsidethebud.com forward slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.